This podcast is brought to you by Dingle Mount Church. It will open up God's Word to you, inspire you to love God, and grow in the knowledge of Him, and challenge you to live a victorious Christian life. Be blessed as you listen. John's Gospel, Chapter 4. John's Gospel, Chapter 4. And uh, what we'll be looking at today, this morning, for the next few minutes that we've got is worshipping God in spirit and in truth. And this is the statement that Jesus Christ made when he had that wonderful conversation with that woman at the well. And, um, or if you might choose to retitle the message, A Heart of Worship. And that's what we are looking at this morning. What exactly does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? And we'll use Psalm 103 to bring out some of the meanings of what we are looking at this morning. Uh, There's been a whole lot of confusion, especially with worship and what exactly does it mean? Uh, How do you define that from scripture? And how do you relate that to our experience in terms of congregational worship? And so there are different aspects. But we just want to focus this morning on what Jesus said to this woman at the well. Uh, When Jesus met her, remember the conversation that went on between Jesus and this woman. After Jesus had told her, that you've had five husbands and um, the one that you're actually living with now uh, is um, not even your, your husband. And uh, Jesus had to then, the woman then said uh, that our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem, which was a place of worship, that's where one ought to worship. And Jesus had to redefine every concept that this woman had about worship. Look at verse 21. He said, Jesus said to her, and that's the emphasis where we're looking at, it says, woman, believe me. He says, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. He said, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. He says, for salvation is of the Jews. Then verse 23, that's where we're going. It says, but the hour is coming and now is, so as it is then, it is also now for us. And now is when the true worshippers, mark that word, true worshippers, it says we'll worship the Father in spirit and truth. I want you to take note of that word spirit there because it's not written in capital. So it's not making reference to the Holy Spirit. Worship the Father in spirit and truth. If you are very observant in your Bibles, sometimes when he's making reference to the Holy Spirit, he uses a capital S to express that. But here he says they worship the Father in spirit and truth. He said, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. And then he goes in verse 24, that God is a spirit. You see that? Capital letters, if you're observant again in your Bible, different from what you had when he said worship him in spirit. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit again, small letters, spirit, and truth. There's a difference there. Shall we, Father, we just ask this morning that you help us as we come to you, uh, as um, it is our desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we pray this morning that every single word that will be spoken uh, will sink deep down into our hearts. And let every aspect of our whole being, Lord, reflect that which you call worship. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, as I said this morning, it's, um, this is a subject, worship, uh, that um, I'm sure most of us, I don't know, maybe you've heard uh, different sermons on worship and what worship means. And that there are loads of texts from the Bible that we can use to explain or to teach what worship means for us as Christians. But this for me in John chapter 4 is one of those texts, or we'll call them classic texts or scriptures, where Jesus engages himself in this conversation with this woman at the well. And for this woman, she had a concept, an understanding of what worship is. Because for them, they went to Jerusalem, which was a place of worship. And of course, if you were a Jew, every male at a particular time of the year, you had to go there to worship. And so they had something they knew or they defined or they had taken to reflect or to stand for their worship. So as Jesus began to talk to this woman, Jesus had to challenge what this woman's conception of worship is all about. And I think that the same thing for us, because sometimes when we come to church and when we come to God's house, or even when we interact or relate with different Christians, we wonder sometimes what exactly is worship. We know that we can go to different churches, maybe 10, 20, or 30 churches within the city today, and you will see different expressions or forms of what you will call worship. And some will argue with you that worship is about the music of the church. And some would say, no, that's not what worship is all about. Worship is about the coming together, the fellowship in everything that we do within God's house. And someone will say, but that's not all there is to worship. Worship is about every aspect of our being, giving glory to God. So from all of that, it's not wrong in terms of the songs that you sing as an expression of worship. There's nothing wrong in coming together in corporate worship to God. There's nothing wrong in even every aspect of your life reflecting worship. But Jesus Christ said something in this scripture that we've read from verse 21 down to verse 24. That there is something that God is seeking. He says God is seeking people who worship him in spirit and in truth. So we are talking about true worship in this instance. So you can worship and still not have worshipped. You may be a worshipper, but still not a true worshipper, as scripture puts it here. And when you look at that word, true worship, what does it mean to be a true worshipper? Because that's what, what Jesus is trying to get across to this woman. It's not just about going to a place. Yes, you can go to Jerusalem every year, travel with your family, take them all and make a pilgrimage. But does that define what true worship is all about. And so Jesus tries to correct this woman's understanding of what true worship is all about. And so when we talk about worshiping God in spirit, like I said, it didn't say spirit as in capital letters when we make reference to the Holy Spirit. But he uses that word spirit, the little small s spirit. In our spirit, we have to worship God in spirit. And some translations or commentators will say it simply means worshipping God in reality. So when we come to God, what we are saying is that we want to be real. We want to worship him in reality. Our inner being or our spirit, not the Holy Spirit, must be right with God. So that the outer motions of worship, whatever then comes out of what we do, then reflects that which has taken place on the inside of us. One thing that God hates is that God doesn't want us to come to church, 
go through the motions, maybe sing the songs, play the keyboard, lift up holy hands to him, talk to one another, and then that's the end of worship. God is more interested in true and authentic worship. Sometimes you can liken worship to love. Because in a love relationship, we know that it's not always based on feelings. Yes, feeling is very important. But if that love is real, if it's genuine, feelings will normally be involved in that expression of worship. And the same thing for us, when we come to God, God is not talking about so much as of our feelings, but when our worship is real, is sincere, is authentic, is genuine, it flows from the inside of us and from our hearts. We cannot separate our feelings from our expression of worship. But Jesus just doesn't stop there in terms of the sincerity or in the reality in which we worship. But it also says that we have to also worship God in truth. So you see two things happening there, in spirit and in truth. And this talks about the content of our worship. Worship must be based on what I call a true revelation of who God has revealed himself to be in his word. And that is why all over the world today, there are different places. People call them places of worship. If you walk into a mosque, it's a place of worship. If you walk into a Hindu temple, it's a place of worship. If you go to another religion or go to their place of gathering, they call it a place of worship. But the question is, is that the kind of worship that God calls worshiping God in truth? It has to do with the revelation of who God is. Because we as Christians cannot worship God if we don't have that proper understanding of who God has revealed himself to be in the scripture. When you go to Psalm 103, we're not going there yet, but we'll still come to that. As you see the psalmist singing and expressing his love for God, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all those songs that you see written in the Psalms, they actually flow out of an understanding of who God is. So when you talk about worshiping God in truth, what you're simply saying is, I have come to understand who God is. I have gotten a revelation of who this God is. And out of that understanding or out of that revelation of who God is, it then overflows out through my life and then finds expression to that God whom I have come to worship. I like the way um, a popular uh, theologian and um, preacher, John MacArthur, how he defines worship. And this is how he defines worship. I had to put this down here. He said that when you talk about worship, he said, our innermost being, this is what it's about. He says, responding with praise for all that God is, all that God is, that is a revelation of who he is, through our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts and words. He says, based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. So when God reveals himself, for instance, as the Lord who provides, as the Lord who heals, as the God, our banner, that's what we've been looking at in our Bible study on a Thursday, the names through which God has revealed himself. What happens? He then calls for that re reaction on the inside of you. Your heart responds and reaches out in praise and worship. And he says it's not just the outward actions, but he says it has to do with not just your attitude, your thoughts, your words, and every aspect of your being. So you cannot talk about worshiping a God without knowing how that God has revealed himself 
in the scripture. And that's why as we come to church every Sunday as worshippers, two things should be in our minds. We know God has revealed himself. And not just that God has revealed himself, we also understand that in the light of that revelation, this is who we are. When I stand before a holy God, a God whom the Bible says that is of a purer eyes than to behold iniquity, how do I respond? It calls for humility on my own part. It calls for brokenness on my own part. It calls me to reflect on the great mercies that that God has bestowed or that God has poured out abundantly upon us. And this is why when we come together in, to, to worship God, no matter the song that we put up on the screen, what we should be do, doing actually is reflecting and asking ourselves, how has God revealed himself? Not just to you as an individual, but how has God revealed himself in that scripture, through those songs that we are singing, and also how do I see myself in the light of this holy God that I've come to worship? The Bible is clear from John chapter 4. It says there that God is seeking worshippers. And isn't that interesting that God is seeking? So it's not something that comes easy. Because you can have a church full of people and you may not have true worshippers sitting in the pews. You may have musicians, but the musicians may not even be true worshippers. You may have a pastor, but the pastor may not even be a true worshipper. So there is something that says God is seeking true worshippers. It's like the heartbeat of God. There is something that he's looking for. And we cannot be God's children without seeking to grow as true worshippers of God. It is my heart desire, and I think this should be everyone's heart desire in this church, that we want to be true worshippers of God. We want to, our worship to be real. Let it not just be a worship that is done in reality, in spirit, but a worship that has content. We know whom God has revealed himself to us to be. And this is why when we go to Psalm 103, we're going there now. If you've got your Bibles, please do go with me uh, to Psalm 103. And that's where you have this praise or a psalm of praise where the psalmist picks on these two elements that I've just mentioned to you, an understanding of who God is and also an understanding of who he is as he began to write uh, this psalm. Because don't forget, I did mention that that is what praise, that's what worship is all about, an understanding of who God is, and then an understanding of who you are. And then that calls for a reaction. Look at Psalm 103, how the psalmist began this, uh, this psalm. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul. That was the song we started with. It says, and all that is within me, it says, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction. He says, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things. He says, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So within that psalm, I'm not going to read it to the end, but I'll pick portions of it. So within this psalm, from verse 1 down to verse 22, you see, there are two major themes coming out which still links up to those two elements that I just mentioned about God's revelation of himself and who we understand ourselves to be. And the first thing you see, which is a major theme coming out of this psalm, is the greatness of God's goodness. The greatness of God's goodness. And that encompasses all that God is. Look at verse 1 in that psalm. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Then verse 2, that is where the greatness of God's goodness comes out. It says, 
bless the Lord all my soul and forget not all his benefits. So what David is actually doing is inviting us to join him in focusing on the tender mercies of God that he's bestowed upon us. We all know that sometimes it's so easy for us to forget all that God has done for us. I can forget sometimes the mercies of God. We have a tendency to forget that God has actually and truly been good to us. And what we do is that we focus on the negatives. We focus on the problems. We focus on those things that haven't really worked out for us the way they should. We focus on our health that maybe we haven't received the healing or the strength that we expect to receive. And so the psalmist says, do not forget this is who God is. Don't forget the things that he has done for you. Remember in the garden, this was the trick of the enemy. God was good and God made everything and God said it is good. But the enemy came in and deceived Adam and Eve. And God gave them the impression that God wasn't good as, 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 as he said that he was in the garden. And that's a trick, and that trick has never changed. Even up to today, while I still speak, there are some of us, maybe you're sitting here today, and you're already beginning to forget all the benefits of God, where you are coming from, the salvation, the things that God, the redemption, and all that God had done for you. And so the enemy promotes that idea that God is not as good as he says he is. Maybe his commandments are very harsh. You don't really have to obey him to have that authentic relationship with him. But the Bible is telling us that God is good. Bless the Lord, he says, oh my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his benefits. I had to remind myself this morning when I woke up and I was lying on my bed. I said, what has God done for me? And I went back as far back as when I gave my life to the Lord. And I can see countless mercies, things that the Lord has done for me. Not just for me, what God had done in my family, what God had done for my friends, what God has done even in the church that he's called us to pastor and this is what god is saying forget not it stems from the goodness of god but look at verse one because something is happening here in verse one in verse one he says bless the lord all my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name now i want you to pick that word his holy name because while we sang that song that's what we're saying bless the lord all my soul and we were talking about god's holy name because when you talk about god's name we are talking about everything, the totality of God's attributes, everything that God is in himself. Because God's goodness stems or comes through his nature. Whatever you see me do is as a result of my, the nature that God has given me. If I have a good disposition, that's what comes out of me. If I have an evil disposition, that's what comes out of me. In the same way, we say that God is love. We call him love. That's a name. And everything that flows out of that name, God is love. God is provider. God is healer. God is ban my banner. God is my warrior. Everything you find is rooted in that name. And in that name, David then begins to tell us or to explain to us these are those attributes that you find in God's name. And this is more like a reminder for us this morning. Because like I said, it's so easy for us to forget what that name stands for. Look at from verse 7 there. And you see the goodness or the graciousness of that we find in God's name. Look at verse 7. He says there in verse 7, he says, He made known all his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. 
He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Everything is tied up to an understanding of who God is. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. And that is our God. And so when I think about that God who is gracious, who is merciful, whom even the times that you've not lived up to the expectation, that God is still merciful. And what David is doing here is calling to remembrance to the Israelites or to the people who are reading this, what God had done. Remember the children of Israel, we knew how they disobeyed God in the wilderness, how uh, they, they spoke against God, spoke against Moses, and sometimes Moses felt like, like wiping them out completely. But then he went back to God's goodness, God's graciousness, God's mercy, and he pleaded for the people. And you see God repenting or God retracted and saying, because of this, this is what I will do. And the same thing. Sometimes we know we don't even deserve God's grace and God's mercy. When you think about the salvation that you've got today, it's not because you're so righteous. not because we've done anything to deserve God's mercies and God's goodness. But God saved you. Scripture says that while we were yet sinners, it says Christ died for the ungodly. And that is the graciousness that we find in our God. Maybe when you get home, please read through this Psalm, Psalm 103. But look at the next thing that you see. Not just that is God gracious, but he says there that God is loving. Look at verse 4. He says in verse 4, Who redeems your life from destruction? Who crowns you, look at that word, with loving kindness and tender mercies? Look at verse 11. He says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, he says, So great is his mercy towards those who fear him. Look at verse 17. He says, for the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And he says, and his righteousness to children's children. God is loving. When you look at this word, that word that God is loving, actually when you go to the Hebrew, it's actually from the Hebrew word known as hesed, and which comes from the word stock or what is known as a bird. How it looks after its little ones. The way it nurtures them. The way it cares for them. The way it feeds them. And that's exactly what God does. God is saying, just in the same way that the natural birds of the sky looks after their young ones. He said, I am a loving God who can do much more than that. And sometimes we think that actually God does abandon us. Or maybe we're in trouble and it's like nobody is here with us to support us. And we're all left alone. And all we do is cry and look up to God and ask questions. Where is God? But he's saying God is loving. He's abounding in it. Look at verse 8. Not just that he is loving. But he says the Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding. That means you can measure the depths of God's love. If I asked you this morning, how much do you think that God loves you? God loves you. I don't know what your answer will be. Does he love you this much? Does he love you that much? Or does he love you this much? The reality is that you cannot measure the height, the breadth, and the depth of God's love for you as a person. And that's why I said that even when you disappoint him, God's love is still there for you. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Remember what the scripture says in Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 4. And this tells you that even this love we are talking about is eternal. When God loved you or chose you. He said just as he chose us in him 
Look at that. It says, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. That's what we're talking about. It says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Eternal love before the foundation of the world. And when you go to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5, we know that we are going to one day reign with Christ forever and ever. That's the kind of love that we are talking about. Human love has a limit. I can love you today and the next day I may not love you as much. I might love you because you do something for me and the next minute when you change your disposition towards me, my love towards you might change. But this is not the God that we serve. The God that we serve is a God who says that I love you, you can't measure it, my love for you is eternal and is a love that will last through time and eternity. Look again at verse 13. This is just to show us what God is doing. Not just that is he gracious, is he loving. Look at the compassion, the compassionate nature of this God that we are talking about this morning. It says in verse 13, it says, As a father pities his children, it says, So the Lord pities those who fear him. Now that word you see there, as a father pities his children, actually the word compassion, as a law father has compassion on his children, so also the Lord does have compassion. Remember when Jesus came in his earthly ministry, most times the scripture will say that Jesus will look at the people, seeing them like sheep without shepherd. He says, and he had compassion for them. Out of the compassion that Jesus had for the people, Jesus ministered to them. In the same way, out of the compassion that God has got for us, God gives us. God relates to us. God blesses us. That word compassion actually originally is from the word, you know, where you get the word womb. You know, when a woman is pregnant and the baby is in the womb. You know how that baby is cared for. How that baby is nurtured. How there is that natural bond between the baby and the mother. And that's what God is trying to get us. So when you read that word, God pities or God has got compassion. It's not just some God feeling sorry for you because you're in a sorry state. What God is saying is that in the same way there is that natural bond between the woman and her baby. He says, that's the same way I have that bond for you and that bond exists. In other words, I will continue to be compassionate towards you. I'll continue to love you. I'll continue to show my affection to you. If that does not gladden your heart, I don't know what else will. Because like I've said, if you, I remember when um, uh, there was a period in my life and I was fasting and praying and seeking God's face for, uh, for some things around me. And all I could hold on to was God's compassion. I always went back to the compassion of God. I said, God, man may not be compassionate as much towards you, but God will always be compassionate. Man may not have that kind of mercy towards you, but God will be compassionate and will be merciful. And that should gladden everyone's heart this morning, that the God we serve is saying to us that I'm not just gracious to you, I'm not just loving to you, I am compassionate towards you. And look at verse 3 and verse 12. In verse 3, you see something again coming out through God's nature. In verse 3, it says there, who forgives all your iniquities, and then who heals all your diseases. Look at verse 12. He says, as far as the east is from the west, he says, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What does that tell you? It tells me that God is forgiving. And this is all we find in this God that we've come to serve. Forgiveness 
in our God. The God whom though we've sinned against him, he still looks at us and forgives. You remember Jesus and the disciples when they came to him and asked him, he said, how many times will my brother sin against me and I'll forgive him? Because sometimes there are limits to forgiveness for us as humans. But here we have a God who is saying, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. And that's when, when you look at the Old Testament, all the sacrificial system, the killing of rams and bulls, everything was pointing to the perfect sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. The time that he will come and fulfill the promise that God made, that all our sins will be forgiven. Not just the sins that we committed in the past, the sins of the future, and even the sins of the present. Everything has been taken care of in the life and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I think that is wonderful to know. There have been people I've spoken to in time past, and you, you can sense this guilt in their hearts, finding it so difficult to forgive themselves for what they've done. They ask themselves questions like, can God truly forgive me for what I've done? They are living in the present, but somehow it's like they are tied to the past. They just can't forgive themselves. But God is saying here in the scriptures that I am forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, it says, so I have removed my transgressions from you. If you look at verse 19, I'm just going to close on verse 19. And hopefully next Sunday we'll pick up on the second aspect of um, God's, uh, the second theme that the psalmist tries to get across to us. Look at verse 19. He says there that the Lord has established his throne in heaven. And he says, and his kingdom rules over all. Now, what do you think the psalmist is trying to tell you by, by, by saying that God has established his throne in the heaven? And that his kingdom rules over all. All he's getting across to you and to me is that God is sovereign. We talk about the sovereignty of God. All we are simply saying when we say that God is sovereign, uh, sovereign or that this is the sovereignty of God, is that God is in control of every single detail of our lives. And the comfort that that gives me and the comfort it should give you is that nothing can thwart the plans of God for your life. How many times have you thought within yourself that it's like someone can stop you from becoming who God wants you to be? Or maybe the situations around you can destroy God's plans and purposes for your life. But the reality is that no matter how much the storms may rage, no matter what happens around you, we serve a God. And that's why in the psalmist, if you read some other psalms, the psalmist kept proclaiming the sovereignty of God. There is a God who rules in the affairs of man. And that same God, he says he can set kings up and he can bring kings down. Now, if I have that understanding that that's the God that I serve, how should I respond to this God? He is a God who loves me. He's a God who shown me compassion. He's a God who forgives me. He's a God whom loves me so much that he's committed himself for me to get to my destination. He says that his throne is in the heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This morning we have a choice to make. Either we believe in the truth of the gospel, the scriptures, or we believe in the lie of the devil. The lie that says that God is ingracious to you, he's forgotten about you. That God isn't loving. That yes, you've sinned against him, but he's still holding that against you. And he's looking for a way to punish or to destroy you. Or maybe you're holding on to the lie that says that God is not compassionate. That bond that exists between a mother and a child, 
that God doesn't have it for you, either because of the way you've been treated by your natural parents or the people around you, and you don't seem that that bond can exist between you and your loving father. God is saying, I can do that for you. Or maybe you think that your life is spiraling out of control, that God is not in control anymore. I want you to leave this place this morning with that assurance in your heart that every detail, the hairs on your hair, every single detail, aspect of your life, there is a God in heaven who knows every single one of them. There is a God who has a plan for you. Remember what the book of Jeremiah tells us? I know the plans and the thoughts I have towards you to give you a future, not just the future, but he says an unexpected end. And that is the God that we serve. That's the God that when I come to him in worship in the morning, it gladdens my heart that I can sing through my voice. I can do, I can relate to people through my actions. I can go back home and my heart will still continue to go out in praise to that God. I don't know if that's the God that you see or if that's the God that you serve. But that is the God that revealed himself and he's saying to us, serve me, worship me. Let your heart go out in praise to me. Shall we bow our hearts this morning? And as we just... If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not join us in worship at the Dingle Mount Church or log on to our website at www.dinglemount.org for more information. Thank you for listening.